Put your bulletins back over. Today is Father's Day, and I thought fittingly enough, I read this, this thing uh, online today as I was getting ready. It says, who does your kid love more? Doesn't, doesn't it seem like fathers get it? Like, like Mother's Day, huge attended Sunday at church. Like everybody has their mama. Like, you know, your mama's always in church and stuff like that. And on Father's Day, it's just a day of, of, for, for many hurt, all right? Like if for many loss. Uh, for many bitterness. I'm not sure what it is, but, but it's, it seems to be a day for, for her. It seems like good dads are hard to find. Some, some women say a good man is hard to find, and, and maybe that's true, but I, I think that, that good dads are hard to find. We're turning that around because we're, we're, we're teaching people, hopefully, that the dad is, is not the most important part of the family, but he sure, it sure is nice when he's, he's around and he loves Jesus and he's leading his kids to Christ. But I think bad, dads get a bad rap. Is anybody else with me? You're like, yo, I got a card and a, and, and a, and a pair, of, a pair of, a tie for Father's Day. Like my mom got a cruise, I got a tie, right? Like, and so I think they get a bad rap. My kids, no matter what, I have three boys, you would think that they would, they would love their daddy and they do love their daddy, but they still prefer their mama. They come out, their first word is always mama. They always want to like put their head, like, like Harrison, he don't, he, he'll like let me, he, he tolerates me, but if he sees mom, he's just like, ma, 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 ma. I'm like, say, dad. It's Father's Day, dad. And so here's what this said. It said, mothers versus fathers and the child's verdict. Who loves mom or dad more? And, and this is what it said. It says, mothers, they carry the children for nine months before enduring the pain of childbirth. Dads had sex. Child's verdict, daddy is the best, right? Like, to me, Daddies are the best. Moms carry the baby, just reality. It sucks for you guys, I know, but we don't got to do it. We didn't sin first, and so anyway, like, I'm pretty sure it was designed like that before the fall of man, but I'm just saying, you guys have to have the baby. All we do is, 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 is pull the goalie, right, and just, and just do the act, and, and it's, it's done, and we're like, hey, give us the baby. The, the, the awesomest thing is you ever had a baby is, is they take the baby from your wife. Like, if you've been in health class, you know how that works, and so they take the baby from your wife, and then you cut the umbilical cord, and then some doctors give your baby to, to the wife for a couple of minutes, but the awesomest doctors, they just give you the baby, and you're like, you're like, I just did all the work here, and your wife's like sweating, and you have the baby. It's incredible. So, Dad, here's another one. Mothers carefully considers children's well-being and safety. Dads can throw the baby like 10 feet in the air. Child's verdict, daddy, daddy, right? Now, come on. Mothers spent 45 minutes last night carefully supervising homework and repeatedly explaining the concept of fractions. Dads spent four minutes last night singing Let It Go in a hilarious voice. Verdict. Some of y'all, some of y'all just grabbed your husband because you did that, right? I don't want to hear that song ever again. Mothers provide unconditional love. Fathers provide unconditional love. And know how to make fart noises on command. Verdict, daddy, right? Like, I, 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 I'm proud to be a father, and I think that fathers are, are awesome. And if you're a dad in this place that's committed to your kids and loves your, loves your wife and loves Jesus, I just want to honor you in this place uh, today. And I thought I would honor you by talking about your favorite topic, sex, right? And so today, we're going to, all guys are like, oh, that's not, that is your favorite topic, right? It is the most searched name on the internet uh, beyond anything else. It is the most popular thing in the world to talk about, and I figured I can either talk about sports, which I don't find in the Bible, or I can talk about sex, which has a lot to say about that in the Bible. So today, we're going to talk about sex, just to let you know kind of where we're at. Last week, we started a sermon series on relationships, and basically, we're going through the books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Deuteronomy and Joshua. It's the story of God's people that were slaves going on a journey that should have taken them 40 days. It actually took them 40 years. So 40 years to go from, I don't know how many miles exactly it was, but it wasn't a long way. So 2 million people leave it and it should have taken them 40 days, 40 years to get to the promised land. And it's a story really of them making fullest decision after fullest decision. And so what I thought is, is there's nothing better that describes a relationship than a journey. And I thought to myself, a lot of us cause heartache in our lives because of the decisions we make on this journey. So last week we started in the book of Exodus where God's rescuing the people from slavery and he says, put the blood of the lamb on your door and, and, and the angel of death will pass over you. And then I read in John 10, 10 where it says that I am the door. And so what I said is I said, before you go anywhere in this life, you have to understand before you pick a partner, before you pick people to date, Jesus has to be your door. He has to be the person which filters in and out what's supposed to be in your life. He needs to be the person which defines who's allowed to come in and who needs to stay out. If you don't get that, you're never going to know who to bring into your life and who to keep out, what to look for, what not to accept. And so that's kind of where we're at today. If you keep reading in the Bible, you get to maybe the hardest book in the Bible to read, Leviticus. Anybody ever open up your Bible and it just happens to go to Leviticus and you're like, I'm just going back to Harry Potter. That's just where where I'm going. Like, (laughs) I don't understand any of Leviticus. So just so you know what happens. Uh, Moses and the people leave and they get to the, the Red Sea, the Bible says, just a condensed version. They get to the Red Sea. And the Bible says the people are already complaining because they turn around and the Egyptians are chasing them. The same people who had made them slaves for 430 years are chasing them. And God, in all his wisdom, has led them to a dead end. Like there is nowhere to go. Like there's no boats. They're, They're traveling with tents and camels. There's nothing. And so they are about to be murdered. And they're starting to say, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt where we were slaves? We were better off slaves. And the Bible says, if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt or, or, or Charleston Heston, you know that he gets to the edge of the Red Sea and he holds up his arms, this staff, and, 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 and it cheesily parts in the middle, right? And the Bible, the Bible is clear. This happened. The, 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 the sea parts and they walk through on dry land through the Red Sea. It's incredible. And then they get through and the Bible says the Egyptians start to chase them. And when they get into the middle of the Red Sea, the water comes back in them and you never hear their names uttered again. Like they're gone. So you would think that, they, the Bible says they make up a song on the spot there, they got a bunch of poets and stuff, and they sing this song, and they're happy, and they're celebrating. You think, man, we're just going to listen to God. The dude has been following us with a cloud and a pillar of fire, and he just parted the Red Sea, and we're just going to listen to God. And that's not what happens at all. They are typical people. A couple days later, moments later in the Bible, sections later in the Bible, they begin to complain again about how they should go back and be slaves again to the Egyptians. The reason is they don't have any food. And then the Bible says that God brings manna from heaven. Manna is like the original Starbucks wafer, right? He brings it from heaven. It's sweet, tastes like honey. He brings it from heaven. And every morning they go out into the desert floor and they collect enough manna to eat for the day. The Bible says to gather enough on the sixth day so you don't have to do anything on the seventh day so you could have a Sabbath. They complain again. They don't have any water. Moses goes over to a rock and takes his staff that's now part of the Red Sea and turned into a snake and ate other snakes. I mean, this thing is a bad mamma jamma. Louisville slugger was on it, and he takes it, and he hits the rock, and the Bible says water comes out, and they have water, and they still complain. They get to the mountain of God, the Bible says, in, in the book of Exodus, and And God asked Moses to come up to the top of the mountain. And if you've ever seen the story, you know that Moses gets the Ten Commandments, and he spends a little bit too much time talking to God the sovereign creator of the universe, and the people get tired of waiting on God. And they come down, and the people have said, you know what, forget Moses, forget God, let's just build an an idol to this golden calf, which if you know anything about history, what they were doing is they were just going back to the gods they worshipped in Egypt. The same God who many of them would have seen baby sacrifice to and, and 
people having sex with prostitutes and all sorts of other disgusting things. They're going back to this God. Moses comes down, and you can imagine he loses his mind. Like he throws down the Ten Commandments, the thing that God had just engraved with his finger, right? He throws them down, and then God gets mad, and then he gets mad, and then God gets madder, and then God's about to kill everybody because he's just mad, and Moses says, don't kill everybody. So a couple people then get killed. It's just it's, it's kind of crazy. The Bible says that, that God and Moses kind of calm down together. And then for the next big portion of Scripture, all of it, gets and all of Deuteronomy, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is essentially writing them laws out that they're going to need to obey as they get to the promised land. And you begin to read it, you're like, what the heck is it talking about? There's scripture that says, do not mark your body at all. You got tattoos in this place? A lot of people do. Sometimes people will read Leviticus, right, if you ever try to read it, and they read it, and they don't understand the culture and the context that it's in, so they'll read it, and they'll go, see, God doesn't want you to have tattoos. So if you got a tattoo on spring break in 1978 of a butterfly with that dude's name you don't remember, a Joseph, you can't even remember the night, and then you came to know Jesus, and you got saved, guess what? You're still out. Why? Because you have a tattoo. And churches get really religious with that. They read other things. There's a there's passage in there that says, don't wear a shirt made of two different fabrics. I mean, I, I don't even like cotton, bro. It shrinks, right? Don't wear a shirt. If it has two, if you take your tag, you're like, I'm not going to heaven today. It has all sorts of these things. You're like, what is God talking about? And here's what you need to understand. The, the, the book of Leviticus, the theme is to be holy. He's telling people, be holy, which if you break it down in the Hebrew, means be set apart. In other words, for 430 years, you lived in Egypt as slaves. You were influenced by the culture of Egypt. You worshiped gods that were brutal, where they sacrificed babies and treated people as objects. And if I allow you, even though I've gotten you out of Egypt and I rescued you, if I don't get Egypt out of you before I get you to the promised land, the way of thinking, you're just going to ruin it anyways. So he spends a bunch of time telling them, look, here's how we're going to change this world. Here's how you're going to be different. Here's how you're going to be set apart. And you need to understand when you read Leviticus that he's talking to people, and they would have been doing this. Wow. This is like a totally otherworldly type of wisdom from God. And the truth was, is, and always will be, when God's word seems like it's of another world, it's because God's plan for you is of another world. In anything, when, when the world says, do it like this, be this, sleep with this, talk like this, act like this, and then God's word says, no, no, no. It's God saying, look, I've saved you, but now I need to get all of this filth and these lies and this thing that's trying to destroy you out of you because I have otherworldly wisdom for you because I have an otherworldly future for you. And today I want to talk to you about sex because people do this with the topic of sex. They'll read the Bible and they'll say, it seems like it doesn't make sense. It, it seems like it's, like it's of, of another world. In fact, the Bible says, check out this verse. I love this verse. In the, in the book of, uh, let me get down to my notes. I just skipped all the way down. I preached by heart. It's at 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what it says. It says, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, because of Jesus, you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, I love this word, as sojourners and exiles to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That word sojourners is basically saying, you're an alien. 
You're, you're an outsider. I don't know if you're into sci-fi, but aliens are always ten times smarter than normal people. Am I right? Like they're always like way ahead of us. In essence, this is what Jesus is telling you. Not in an arrogant way, not going, yo, I'm an alien, baby. I'm way smarter than you. What he's saying is, is people in this culture, their eyes are so scaled over by garbage that they don't even understand it. And what he's saying is my wisdom is so much greater than anything you've ever heard. The reason is, is because what I'm calling you to is so much more special than anything you're ever going to find on this earth. And so when it doesn't make sense in this culture, you need to understand God is not of this culture, I'll give, you, I'll give you a really practical explanation. A few months ago, I was, on, I was on Facebook. I go on Facebook like 20 times a day. I got a problem. I was on Facebook, checking Facebook, and I, and I scrolled down. And, and Facebook seems to be like articles now. Am I right? Like there's an article, what, what dads do that nobody sees, and, and, you know, who's your mama, and stuff like that. Like just all these crazy articles about this, this article will make you cry. Watch it. And you always watch it, and you cry. And there was this one picture of this chicken. I don't know if you've ever seen this on on. on on Facebook, it was this chicken, it was red, it had no feathers. Did you guys see this? And it had like multiple wings. Like it looked like something out of the book of Revelation. And I, was, I clicked on it. And it said, this is what they're growing and now serving at most restaurants in America. It was a chicken without feathers. And it was a chicken with about 15 wings on each side of it. And the reason was because when they tell you it's 15 wings for the price of one, they're not lying. They can sell you 15 wings because they've genetically made this chicken in a, in a barn somewhere. If they even are in a barn, I don't know where they do this at. And then they sell it to you and you eat this all white meat with the chicken. And listen, in my line of life and what my thing, anything with more than, than two breasts and two thighs is a freak, if you know what I'm saying. Like that just, that just doesn't make sense. So I thought to myself, we don't even know we're eating this. I go to all these restaurants and I get chicken nuggets and I get all stuff and I eat this stuff and I have no idea that it has no feathers and I don't even know if this is the right wing. Wings. I don't know what this is. And I thought to myself, that's the exact same way we are in this culture. There's things that we do that we don't even know we're doing it because culture has told us it's right. If we would just step out of culture, can you just admit with me right now? That I'm all about the production of the way you do something. So if we say in this church, and we'll, we'll have these conversations often, we exist for those not yet here. And then for three or four weeks, there's like three visitors at our church. We don't exist for those not yet here anymore. We exist for our church people. So what we'll say is, how can we get people to invite more people to church? And so what we did this past year is because we went through a couple weeks where nobody was inviting anybody. We got this new building. Everybody was happy. We liked it. It was awesome. No more parking. But nobody was inviting people to church for like three or four weeks. And so we figured out we need to make some videos that are going to encourage people to invite people. So we made a couple videos with encouraging stories. And all of a sudden, people started bringing people to church again. So we're all about the production of what you say. You can't say, I love Jesus and not be a different person. That's what people simply find unbelievable when you go, I love Jesus, yet I do the same things everybody else does. And can we just talk for a second about our world and sex? I mean, it is it's crazy what, what happens to people. We have a problem with pornography. We have a problem with infidelity. We have a problem with being promiscuous. We have a problem with hurt and pain and shame. Men have a problem with, with lust. Women have a problem with insecurity, thinking that they're a piece of, of meat. I mean, women will read the Bible and say, it just seems like it's so sexist. And then I'll walk out and see women dress, and I think, no, that's sexist. You have limited yourself to a body to attract a dog. Look, we, we, are, 
We're messed up, so we might need otherworldly type of wisdom. So this message, listen, is not meant to condemn you because I know that when I talk about this, when I talk about what the Bible says about sex, that most of us, the Bible says that 61% of even church people are going to have sex before marriage. It's not an excuse to do it. It's just the reality of where you might be at. There's people in this room that you're sleeping together right now. There's people that you've had kids outside of marriage and you're a single mom. This message is not meant to condemn you. It's meant to encourage you and maybe open up your eyes where you can go, okay, there's a different way to do it because God has a different and greater plan for my life. And what I found is in our culture, when it comes to sex, there's all these lies floating around. Did, did you know that? Especially when it comes to God. And I think if you can open people's eyes up to lies, that there can be change in their life. So here, here's the very first lie. You ready for this lie? You ready? God hates sex. Anybody ever, ever hear that, believe that, comprehend that? There's this whole concept of sex, this beautiful thing, this thing that makes millions and billions of dollars. And we go like this. We go, God hates it. And the truth is, it's because that's all you ever hear in church. Here's what God's against. Here's what he doesn't want you to do. Here's what he doesn't want you to enjoy. The truth is that God created sex, and listen, and knows the purpose and the power of it. You can know that because of how soon it, in the Bible it talks about it. Like if it was like... Leviticus, and God's like, yo, and that other thing you guys figured out how to do at the Tower of Babel, you need to stop doing that. Like, we could be like, yo, God is really against sex. Like, he, he is dis- he's disgusted by it. But if you read the Bible, it's not like God made Adam and God made Eve. He made them naked. He gave them the parts. You guys were in health class. You know how it works. And then all of a sudden, he went away on the seventh day to rest, and he came back, and they weren't resting. Adam's smoking a cigarette in, in, a, in a tree somewhere, you know, Eve freshening up, and he's like, what were you guys doing? That's not how it happened at all. In fact, if you read Genesis 2, this is what it says. It says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was fine. In other words, here's what happened. God made all these, these animals. He said, Adam, name the animals. I mean, how incredible is that? that, that it would have been awesome to be Adam. He's naming, you know, rhinoceroses and gorillas and and dogs, and, and the Bible, in a couple chapters later, there's a fall of man, if you've read that, and sin. Cats weren't invented before then, so he probably didn't name cats. That, that was probably Eve after sin came in. And so, naming all these animals, the Bible says he's depressed still. There's no suitable helper for him, the Bible says. By the way, that's, we're going to talk about, that's a great picture of what it means to be married. There's nothing better if you're a dude than be able to look at your wife and say, man, you are an amazing helpmate. You, you are an amazing partner with me. There's no partner for me here, God. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then it says this, it says, then the Lord God made a woman from the, from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. I mean, could you imagine this? Guys, you guys remember on your, on your honeymoon, this, this is that moment. He's been sleeping, he wakes up, he's missing a rib, Right? And the Bible says God brings Eve to, to Adam. He, I think he performs the first wedding ceremony. He made up. Dun, 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 right? Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife. And then check this out. And they become one flesh. You don't have to. Be a rocket scientist to figure out what that means. 
A little bit earlier in the Bible, in Genesis 1, it kind of gives you an account of creation. Genesis 2, it gets more detailed. But in Genesis 1, it says this of them. It says that God blessed them, the man and woman, and says to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, you were in health class. You know how you increase in number. You have babies. If you have one, two babies, that's fine. After you have one or two babies, if you get fixed, that's fine. You keep practicing. He says, you just keep going. My plan is that you become one with the other person and you have lots of sex and make as many babies as I want to give you. And then when the kids grow out and they get out of the house because you were faithful to each other, you get to run around like two teenagers in your home and because you change the locks and the kids can't, can't get home and you get to be like two teenagers again. That's what I think about my marriage someday. I'm going to hit my stride when I'm 55, right? He says, I want you to be one flesh, and I want you to make a lot of babies. So, so here's the thing. So God can't, can't be against sex. God can't hate sex because God created sex. So here's the other truth then. Anytime you take the creation away from, from the creator and you try to define it on your own, you're in trouble. I watched a movie some, some months ago about Steve Jobs with Ashton Kutcher in it. I don't know how I felt about Ashton Kutcher being Steve Jobs, but... But I never really knew all of the history of Apple. I knew that, that he made up the product and he was the inventor of it and they started in a, in, a, in a garage somewhere and then he made millions of dollars, billions of dollars and all this other stuff. But I never knew the whole story. Do you know that there was some point when Steve Jobs was inventing a computer that the rest of the, the people in Apple didn't really like and they, they got this outside CEO to come in and kind of run the business and they didn't like the direction he was going and they actually fired the creator of Apple? I mean, I know there's business books around. That is not in the move. Like, how do you save a business? You fire the creator of the product. They fired him, and in the movie, everything starts going downhill. IBM starts making a comeback. What is IBM? I don't even know what that is. IBM starts making a comeback. And in the movie, they have to go back to him, and they have to beg him to come back. And he comes back, and then he starts to create all these new computers, and now we have all these phones sitting in your pockets right now that you are dying to check. I told myself, that is life. Anytime that you take the creation out of the creator's hands, there's problems. And the problem is in our culture, we've said, hey, we know sex is fun, so that's what it's created for, so let me take it. And God's saying, yes, sex is fun, but, but it's also meant to create oneness in a committed, intimate relationship with another person. And when you take it out of that and you just say sex is fun, everything gets messed up. I told you a few years ago when I preached this same sermon that the last time I preached on this that my, my middle son was being potty trained. And he was kind of hard to potty train. I don't know if you have little boys, but they never figure out. I don't even know if men figure out where the potty's at. Like it's just, we just go. We hope we hear water, right? If you don't, it's fine, right? <laughs> if you have little boys, you just blame it on them. So I was trying to teach Lincoln about the potty. And one time, I mean, he, he went all over the place. He went all over the place in my house. But one time, I remember specifically, he's on the top of the steps. He had his diaper off. He gets to the edge of the steps, the top of the steps. He's about two and a half, three years old. And he just sets his aim, and he just goes all the way down all the steps. I mean, he baptized every step from the top. I'm not even sure how he went that far. I didn't know it was possible. And I'm walking steps, and I'm stepping on it. And I'm like, why is the steps all wet? And I remember Carter's like, Lincoln peed. Like, just like as, as normal as Lincoln peed down the steps. And I was so mad at him but it wasn't because he peed it was because he peed in the wrong spot it wasn't because he was going my whole goal was go pee outside of your diaper but there's only one spot in the house that's going to be okay 
It's round, it has water in it, and it flushes. Anywhere else in the house, your bed, your drawer, right? A cup. Well, there's two spots in the house you can go. You can go in the toilet, or occasionally we can go outside off the deck of our second story deck onto the ground. That's pretty cool, too. That's every guy's right. But that's it. Anywhere else is going to mess you up. Anywhere else is going to mess me up. Anywhere else, your butt's going to be hurting. Anywhere else. I think God does the same thing. He's saying, I created sex. There's only one place I want you doing it in, and that's in marriage. Anything else creates a mess. I understand it, but you have to do it where I'm telling you to do it. And that didn't sound right. You have to abstain from it. There's so many words you have to not say when you're preaching on sex. It's really, it's really challenging. <laughs> I mean, God hates, doesn't hate sex. Sex is God's idea. Y'all, y'all got a dirty mind, man. Lie number two. If God created sex, he loves it. He knows about the purpose and the plan for it. It's created to, have, to, to be one, one flesh, make lots of babies, have lots of sex. And then the next thing that people would say is, well, isn't God's plan boring? Isn't that what we're led to believe? That excitement is in the unknown. That excitement is in barely knowing the person and just giving your body to them and just sleeping with them. Haven't we even been told, and maybe you've had a guy friend, and typically the single dude that's not married, that doesn't have any kids. He's like 45 years old. He, he was on varsity in 1978. He has a jacket to prove it. Slept with some head cheerleader. Never, never talked to him again. And I want to tell you, you're going to sleep with the same woman for the rest of your life? Like, isn't that what we believe? Like, that is Boring. To, to only have sex with one person for the rest of your life, that just seems like it's, it's a really stupid idea. And I, I, would, I would make that, really, that thinking really practical like this. Do you have a car? You own that car. What if I came over to your house and I took the keys from your car, that's not my possession, and I took it out. And I'm not the best driver in the world if you've driven with me. I just kind of do my own thing. Signs are optional to me. God's grace is good. And, and I crashed your car into a wall, just a little crash, just the front fender, squished it in a little bit. I, I had a big gulp slurpee when I hit my brakes when I crashed into the wall. Uh, it spilled all over your tan interior, and I didn't really get it up. And, you know, I got hungry. I didn't have any money, so I took your, your CD player out of your, your car, and I sold it at, at the pawn shop because I needed some, some lunch. And, and then I got a flat tire, and, I, and then I just brought it back to you, and I'm like, here you go, here's your car. I mean, none of us are going to be like, sweet, you took it for a test drive, and you trashed it. Awesome. you would be like, what did you do to my car? And, and I thought to myself, that's exactly what we're doing to each other in this culture. We're taking somebody else's property, because the Bible says you're a son or daughter of God. So you're his property. So if you're a daughter of God, what you expect is what God tells you to expect. If you're a son of God, how you treat a daughter of God is how, you, is how he tells you to treat them. I don't have a daughter, but I know if I did, and you came and you mistreated my daughter, that we would have trouble. I don't even have a gun, and I would get one. We test drive each other. We go out, and we, we meet, and we, we, we have a sexual encounter, and, and then we, we kind of crash, crash landing, and we just dust ourselves off, and we find somebody else, and we do all stuff. And, and there's this, this thought in the Bible, and here's, or this thought in culture, and here's what it is. What you do doesn't affect you doesn't hurt anyone. And the truth is that when God said that I want you to leave your mom and dad and I want you to become one flesh, 
What he was saying is on a much deeper level is you need to understand that I know that sex is fun and it, it, it's amazing and it's exciting, but sex, sex also is unifying. And when you sleep with somebody, in essence what you're doing is you're becoming one with them. And so what happens is it's like a piece of duct tape that you take. The first time that it sticks somewhere, it's the stickiest. But if you rip the duct tape off and you re-stick it, not only is it going to pull some remnants of whatever it's sticking to, and you stick it, the remnants are going to go to the other thing, and it's going to stick there. But, it, but if you peel it off, the stickiness is just going to kind of get weaker and weaker until finally the, the tape is worthless. Some of you know how that is because some of you are there right now. You feel worthless. You feel all the same. There's girls that I, t- that I know that they go, well, I don't expect or know or understand or even know what to look for because I've done so much wrong that I don't even deserve what you're talking about. There's guys that say, I just can't control myself because God made me like this and I just have urges. And here's a news flash for you, buddy. No one has ever died from not having sex. Did you know that? Ever. People do die because they have sex, but nobody has ever died. It's never been like, well, I just got so, you know, backed up. I've heard that from from people before. I got sick. And I died. (laughs) When I got to heaven, I was mad at God. (laughs) I mean, think about those conversations you have with people. I mean, I'm just laughing thinking about them. I've had them many times. God's plan is not boring. God's plan is best. Because as you know, when you take that person with you, if that's really what happens and you leave some of your, you with them, then by the time you meet the person you're supposed to marry, you're giving them not, not an experienced person, which some, our culture believes, your experience, which will make it better. You can tell them about all the experience that you've had with everybody else. Tell them by name. Compare them. Now you get to that person and you are half the person you were supposed to be. And some of you know because you've went through marriage like that. And, and you can grow from it and you, you, can, you can move on from it and you can have a healthy relationship. But it causes all this extra baggage. So really, God's plan is best. It's not boring. And the last thing, the third lie that we hear is God wants to keep us from the future and hold us in the past. So what you're saying is that God only wants me to have sex with my wife and my husband. That seems so 1950s. We've been liberated. You know how liberated we've been? We're liberated, and most of you, or many of you, grew up in a broken home because we're liberated. We're liberated. Girls are are liberated, yet they're more insecure today than they've ever been. They feel more worthless. We're liberated. We're liberated, but today we have an epidemic of, of child slavery and prostitution. We're not liberated. God's ways are not to hold us in the past and keep us from the liberated future. Actually, what I would argue is God's way is to keep you from having a past so that you can have an amazing future. What you do today affects you tomorrow. I don't know if you know that. We're going to see that in the story. Every decision that you make, it goes with you. Especially when it comes to this. I I read an interesting article this week, and this is what it said. It said, said I'm a counselor, and I've counseled many people, the article said. It said, people cry in my office all the time, but the only time they break down is because of sexual things that have happened to them. Sexual mistakes. Girls have been raped, molested. Guys have been molested. They break down because of that. Mistakes that they've made with a with the, with the boyfriend or girlfriend. They break down. And the article said, here's why. 
Because in the Bible, in the book of Corinthians, we're told that there's no other sin that hurts you other than sexual sin, personally. All other sin is typically done to other people. I'm angry at you. I'm a lie to you. It's, it's a sin against somebody else. But, but sexual sin, promiscuity, molesting, rape, not valuing stuff, they hurt you. They shame you. Some of you have gotten such to the point where you just say, you know what, I don't even, I don't feel value for myself at all. And you hope, you hope if you just give yourself to somebody that they're going to value. But what you're doing is you're just giving yourself to them and they're just using you again and throwing you out. And here's the thing, you've gotten to the point now where you're like, I can never have what you're talking about. And that's just not true. Do you know that? The Bible says that, that what perfect love is, that fear and pain and sorrow is cast out. His name is Jesus. He saved prostitutes. He changed tax collectors. He's changed a prideful, arrogant, religious person. And he can change you. And his laws for you are not to keep stuff from you. It's to protect you. It's to give you a future that looks nothing like this world's future. What if everybody in this church, what if we weren't a 61% church? What if everybody in this church just said, you know what? This is what God's word said. He's not old-fashioned. He's not trying to keep me from fun. I believe him. I believe him. I'm going to follow him all the rest of my life. As I close, I read this story this one time. I saw this sermon illustration, and I thought it was so powerful. A preacher was preaching on this very topic, and he said, he said, I have this rose. I'm going to pass it around. I just want you to, to touch it. As you pass it around the church, and he started preaching. And the rose went all over the, the audience, hundreds of young people. He was talking about abstaining from sex, and so he's talking his points, same points. God is for sex. God's plan is best. It's not, it's not boring. God has a, per, a future for you. He's trying to keep you from a past. He's trying to redeem you. And then he started to do his altar call, and at the end of point number three, he, he says, where's my rose? And you can imagine a rose being passed around an audience for 30 minutes. It was pretty tore up petals were missing it was kind of laying off to the side and he brought it back up and, and his point was this is how some of you are now who's going to want you you passed yourself around you slept around you've given yourself to people now who's going to want you and I was reading this and it was actually from one of my favorite pastors and he said what I was thinking is God wants you God wants you he wants to take you just as you are he wants to redefine who you are. He wants to set you free from your past. If you're in a present situation, he wants you to give you the power to overcome it because he has a future for you. He has a future that is, the Bible says, where he is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. That's what God can do. You can't do anything. You put your trust, your hope, your future in God's hands, and he is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. That is a powerful verse in the book of Ephesians. God wants you. If you're in this place and you feel shame because you're addicted to pornography, and I know there's people in this room that are, they can't stop looking at it. You make a commitment every Sunday, I'm going to try really hard. You don't have enough strength inside of you. But if you give your life 
to Jesus, the Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. In other words, there's nothing that's going to come to No weapon formed against you shall prosper. The weapon that the enemy's bringing against you is lust, which is going to destroy you, which is going to cause you to live in secret, which is going to cause you to have shame. There's some of you in this place that you were molested and you were abused and you're angry at the person. It's defined your entire life. It's made you promiscuous. It's made you want to look outside of God to find value and worth. And he's saying, come to me. Not only can I help you overcome this, give you the ability to forgive the person who hurt you, move on from them, not let them define you. I'm not sure where you're at today, but I know this issue touches everyone. It affects everyone. There's barely anybody. Anybody. In fact, one of the first couples that I've met, and I'm I'm probably going to embarrass him, but he talked about it before, is Jordan and Isaiah. They got married when they were 20. He was 15. He wasn't. And they did it right. There's barely any couples I, I meet that they came to the altar scar-free, baggage-free. I wasn't. I mean, John talked about it. He wasn't. We weren't baggage-free. God has given us a future. He's done immeasurably more than I could ever ask, dream, or imagine. But I had to give my life to Christ. I had to commit my life to Christ. This issue will destroy you if you keep going and doing what you're doing, believing what you're believing. So it's not a time to feel condemned and go, you know what, nobody else in this room is going through what I am, because that's garbage. If you're sitting here, if you're in our Limerick campus, if you're watching online, this, this issue might be hitting you to the core. And all you need to say in this moment is, Jesus, I need your help. I'm in a relationship I shouldn't be in. I put my, my faith and my trust in this person, and we've gone places we shouldn't go. Jesus, I need your strength to cut the cord, to walk away from this relationship. Some of you are like, I've been with this person for years. We have kids together. We've made every excuse why we shouldn't get married. Jesus, you're calling us to get married soon. Jesus, would you just give us the strength, the courage, the wisdom to take that next step? I'm not sure what it is, but I know he's here for you right now. Would you stand with me all over this house and at our Limerick campus? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And if you're in this house right now, or in our Limerick campus with Pastor John standing in the front, and you would say, you know what, I got that issues you're talking about. Maybe you've made the excuses for why you don't do things in the Bible. Now you understand that God has something better for you. He's not keeping you from something. He's getting you to something. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what it looks like. I'm not sure what you're going through. Maybe you have shame in this place. Shame is just you carrying what you're doing on the inside, internalizing it, keeping it to yourself, dealing with it with yourself, never really getting away from it. Some of you, I I know what you feel like. You feel like you're swimming upstream. The Bible says, come to me if you're really heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Maybe your marriage is falling apart because of your secret addiction. I'm not sure. Maybe your marriage is falling apart because of a past that hurt you, that destroyed you. I'm not sure. Maybe you're a single person and you're so afraid that if you do it God's way that he, he won't get you where you're going. And what I know is the way that I understand and trust God is, is, is always me going back and seeing him come through over and over and over again. So then my mindset is, God, if you did it here, you're just going to do it again. God, if you split, split the Red Sea, God, you're going to get us food. If you got us food, God, you're going to get us water. God, if you got us water... God, you're going to speak with us. If you did all this, God, you're going to get us to the promise. And God, if you've done this, God, if you've got me to this place, if you've got me to this room, and you've saved me in this area, and you've rescued me, and you transformed me, God, I know my life is in your hands. There's nothing better than waking up every moment and going, 
my, my life and my future is in the hands of my creator. He knew me before I ever knew myself. There's nothing worse. There's nothing more fear-filled. There's no more anxiety than waking up and being unsure of the future. And the truth is, without God, you always will be. You always will be. And so right now, if you know Jesus, but maybe you're struggling with this area, I'm not going to ask you to place your hand up high, but maybe just bow your heads and just, just start to pray. Just, Jesus, I just need your help in this place. I just need you. I need your help. I need to feel what you feel about me. I need to hear the truth of what you, what you think. I need, to, I need to be able to rest assured in your presence. And if you're in this house at our Limerick campus and you don't have a relationship with God, the Bible says the only way to be right with God is through his son, Jesus. That you're not going to be right with God because you've been really bad and today you were really good. You're not going to be right with God because you start going to church. You're not going to be right with God because you read the Bible and you memorize scripture and you start dressing right and talking right. And no matter how good you try to get, that you're still going to fall. And the Bible says that the wages of your sin, my sin, is death and hell. But 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus. That's a powerful name in this place. And Jesus came to this earth and he died on the cross. And his life ended how yours should have ended. He was placed into a tomb, and on the third day, the Bible says he rose from the dead. So he died the death that you should have died. He rose from the dead so that you could live the life that you didn't deserve to live. And it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that you can have new life. The Bible says that your sins can be forgiven past, present, and future. That you can walk out of this place no matter where you've been and what you've done. The Bible says a new person. That scripture was written by a murderer. Jesus changed his life. He became a missionary. You become a brand new creation. I know what it's talking about because I know what Jesus has done in my life. I'm not a good person who went to Bible college, who had a good upbringing. I'm a saved person. I know Jesus is good and I know he loves you today. And the Bible says that if you would stop running, if you would take the opportunity to realize who you are and you would see who he is and how good he is, and the Bible says if you would repent, which means turn away from your sins, and you would confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that you'll be saved, that you'll be free from who you were, that you'll have security and where you're going, and you'll have a hope for eternity one day, that your last breath here, that your next breath after death will be with Jesus forever. The only way you can do that is through a relationship with Christ, a moment in time. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. If you're in this place and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you came into this place and you are just a wreck, you're far from God, you died today, you know you wouldn't spend eternity with God because you don't know the Son, and the Son needs to set you free in this place, with nobody looking around in this moment, with nobody moving, just for a moment, you say, That's, this is me, this, you're talking to me, Pastor. Jesus, I want you to come into my life right now. Would you simply just place your hand up high at our Limerick campus, if that's you. Just place your hand up high. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to give you one more second to respond in this place. I see you back there. Anybody else say, Pastor, that's me. That's me. I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. At a Limerick campus, Pastor John's watching. Just put your hand up high. Let him recognize you. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for every person in this room. Lord, this is not a message of condemnation. Because where you are, there is none. So your hope and your peace and your future is here, Lord. And so I thank you for those who may be coming here heavy-hearted with a burden that's 
That's tough to carry. The Bible says if we would just come to you and cast our cares and our worries and our, and our plans and our past and our future on you, that you would carry us. And so I thank you. I thank you that we can trust you with our future. We can trust you with our relationships. We can trust you. The word of God, the Bible says, changes us and gives us wisdom. It lights our path, Lord. So I thank you for those of us who know you, Lord, that right now that you're encouraging us to follow you. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you in this place, Lord, that they're being made right in your sight through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that they're confessing with their mouth and they're believing in their heart that you are Lord. And Lord, you're saving and changing them right here in this moment. What they desired, what they thought about, what they talked about when they got here, Lord, it's changing right now in this moment. They're leaving this place a brand new person, a forgiven person, a changed person, the power to forgive those that have hurt them, and they're being defined by this moment right here. Jesus is becoming their Lord and their Savior. I thank you for those in Limerick. I thank you for those watching online. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence and your good name that we pray. Amen, amen. Would you clap with me, church?